Hi, I'm Lindsay Ford, and you're listening to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm a David Rubenstein Fellow in the Foreign Policy Program, and this is day three of our five-day Global China Takeover of the Cafeteria podcast. I'm talking to different Brookings scholars each day this week about a new series of papers for our Global China project that explore various aspects of China's global power and influence. Today's episode's a little different from our other discussions this week because I'm going to be talking with Cheng Li about Chinese domestic politics and more specifically what we should understand about Xi Jinping as a political leader. Cheng is the director of the China Center here at Brookings. We're going to talk elite politics, Xi's effort to remake the CCP, and the political strategies that he's employed to centralize power in China. Chung, we've been talking about China's global influence this week, but I'm glad we're having today's conversation, since I think an important element of analyzing the policies that we're looking at from the outside is to take a look at the leaders behind them. You've written a lot about elite politics in China. The paper that you've written for this series talks about the contradictions of today's China. Certainly for outside observers and experts, the past few years have put some of these contradictions on stark display. You talk in your paper about how we should understand Xi Jinping and his influence on Chinese policymaking, which is an important topic to address because it's been a hot one of late. I think because Xi's own centralization of power and influence is something that we've seen so clearly in the past few years but also as a lens that people have used to explain some of the changes that we've seen taking place in China. And as we see China growing more politically, more economically, more powerful on the one hand, we also see that under Xi there's been crackdown on domestic dissent and freedom of speech, pressure on human rights, domestic NGOs, and of course the mass imprisonments we've seen taking place in Xinjiang. So Cheng, I want to start off talking with you about the title of your piece, which gets at some of these contradictions, and I thought it was interesting. It's called Xi Jinping's Pro-Regress. Can you talk to us about this idea of pro-regress, explain it, where'd you get this idea from, and why do you think this is an important concept to understand when we're talking about Chinese policymaking under Xi? Sure. Pro-regress, combining progress and regress, was a word coined by the American poet E.E. E. Cummings almost a century ago. I came across this word as it was used as a thematic title of the 2018 Shanghai Biennial, a reputable international contemporary art exhibition in Shanghai. Interestingly, the Chinese thematic title of the Biennial also really used the Chinese term called Yubu, which is the mystical Taoist ritual dance steps of ancient China, in which the dancer appears to be moving forward while simultaneously going backwards or vice versa. Now, while this symbolism can apply to various paradoxical phenomena and perhaps the global context in general, it is particularly valuable in assessing Chinese President Xi Jinping's consolidation of power on the one hand and his domestic socio-economic policies on the other hand. Now, both the English word pro-regress and the Chinese term yubu not only point out the contrasting assessments due to different perspectives, but also reveals the imperative on the part of Xi Jinping to maintain a fragile balance through a number of important policy moves. Now, for example, 
domestically, he portrayed himself as inheritor of the legacy of both Mao and Deng, who represented the two different styles of leadership and socio-economic policies. Internationally, he offers contradictory clues regarding whether China seeks to be a revisionist power or to preserve the status quo in the post-Cold War global order. Now, these kind of things uh, constantly or frequently appear with Xi Jinping's policy over a few years. Now, he is very conservative in terms of media control, crackdown, you know, intellectual freedom, and also like the term limits, abolition of, of the presidential term limits. This really alienated the country's intellectuals. But at the same time, he reached out to the public with the anti-corruption, military reform, and also some of the economic policy could be market-orientated. At the same time, also try to adjust, continue to promote the state-owned enterprises. You see numerous contradictions that he tried to position himself with different interest groups, and also the country become increasingly more dynamic uh, society level. So this is the way he handled his domestic policies, politics with economics, conservative politically, but also some of the adjustment in terms of economic policy. The same things with international policies that he probably relatively better perceived in South America, in Africa, but certainly caused a lot of concern with this authoritarian outreach in Europe, in China's neighboring countries, and also in North America. Yeah, so I thought that this idea of contradictions, right, in Chinese policy and looking at that through the lens of some of the contradictions in Xi's own life and his own approach and how he sort of has cast himself in these very different lights was really interesting. And you start off talking about that a part of this, some of these contrasts in understanding Xi Jinping actually has to do with his own childhood and the way that he grew up. And what I thought was so interesting here, you say— she is both a princeling and a peasant, right? And that both of these sort of very different formative experiences that he had, you can see playing out in his policymaking. So talk to me a little bit about how she has used both of these identities to his own political advantage in different ways. Absolutely. As we know, Xi Jinping was born red or the princeling. He was a princeling son of a veteran revolutionary leader during the communist takeover in China. In 1953, the year Xi Jinping was born, his father was actually secretary general or the chief of staff of the state council, which was responsible in terms of assistant Chairman Mao and the Premier Zhou Enlai in running the government. Xi Jinping spent most of his early childhood years in Zhongnanhai, which is the headquarters, the compound reserved for the most powerful officials in the country where the families of the leaders were waited on by sheriffs, nurses, drivers, and the bodyguards. It's a very privileged family. But when Xi Jinping was nine years old, his father fell out of favor with Mao Chairman Mao and was purged from the Chinese Communist Party. Political circumstances actually become even worse for Xi Jinping's family when the Cultural Revolution began in 1966. A few years later, in 1969, at the age of 16, Xi Jinping was dispatched along with countless other teenagers to Yan'an, a very poor region of the Chinese called Yellow Earth. 
where he and his fellow teenagers live in caves, slept on brick bed, and toil as farmers, as peasants. Xi Jinping spent over six years, his formative years, in this very difficult physical environment, which gave him the unusual opportunity to develop an understanding of a socioeconomically disadvantaged area of the country. Now, this kind of dual identity as both princeling and the peasant now serve as a political asset for Xi Jinping as he became the top leader, enabling him to switch between one and other when it benefits him to do so. That reflects his contradictions you just described and also this kind of regrets that I described early on. So he constantly tried to position himself in the best advantage position domestically, internationally. So sometimes that they cause some confusion or ambiguities. So this is the way he handling the political situation in China. And what you talk about is that when she is positioning himself to move into power, this identity as what folks refer to as a princeling in China, which basically means you're a part of the elite class, right? That this is how he positions himself over some of perhaps Hu Jintao's factions. But then when he gets into leadership position, what you see is a pivot toward perhaps a more populist positioning of himself. And actually, I thought it was so interesting because the thing that was popping into my mind as I'm reading your paper is I was like, huh, so you have someone who's grown up in this elite coastal background and yet for political purposes has positioned himself as a populist leader of the people in rural areas and things. Some really interesting similarities perhaps in the political backgrounds and sensibilities of how President Trump has leveraged his political (laughs) identity and Xi Jinping there that I had never actually thought about before. So you talk a bit about Xi perhaps becoming more populist and some of the efforts he's made to sort of rebrand himself as a leader of the people, per se. I think this is interesting, and what I want you to explain to people, I think people get why populism is appealing as a political strategy, perhaps here in the United States, maybe even in places like the UK, because in democratic systems, you need to play to certain political constituencies. But why is that a good political strategy in China? Well, when he came to power, the Communist Party was in big trouble. The corruption was out of control. And the political infightings, especially as we look at that period in 2012, Bo Xilai, another princeling, started his campaign for top leadership. So eventually he failed, largely because of the scandal and the murder case involved with his wife and Neil Hayward, the British businessman. So the Communist Party was in big trouble in terms of legitimacy and the rampancy of the corruption. Now, Xi Jinping took this opportunity to put the anti-corruption as his top priority. His previous background as a peasant in inland China, in poor region, certainly gave him the opportunity and the background to say the words that the people could understand. So that positioned himself well. So he shifted from the princely background to the leader of the people, not only because of the police policy, anti-corruption, but also by economic policy. Now, he really accelerated the poverty reduction. Actually, he used the term policy elimination. He gave the promise 
that by 2020, next year, China will completely eliminate absolute poverty, meaning based on the World Bank or UN definition, like below $2 a day. Now, certainly Xi Jinping was not the leader started that. And uh, Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao all carry out the poverty reduction. But Xi Jinping used the term precision poverty elimination to really implement with much government input. The, if you look at the charts in my paper, you can see the rapid rise of the budget spent on poverty. So he really determined to complete that. He was fortunate enough to be the person to deliver. Now, as Bill Gates recently said, that over the past 40 years, a total of 800 million people in China got out of poverty. So Xi Jinping deal with the last 40 million people. So if we can succeed that, this leaves a great legacy for the Chinese Communist Party and for his leadership. So he's fortunate enough to deliver that. So that makes him really popular. He frequently visits poor region more than any other leader, any of his predecessors. So that actually, it's not just a lip service, not just a political position, but also with certain degree of delivery. So that certainly gained him tremendous support from ordinary people, despite the fact that some of his policies like political control, media control, and the personality cut alienated the country's intellectuals, and to a certain extent that also alienated some leaders. But he is very popular in the vast region of the particular poor region in the country. That gave him tremendous capital, which he can spend. And you talk about, right off the bat, this anti-corruption campaign, which has been really sweeping. And as you say, a piece of this was aimed at perhaps trying to shore up the legitimacy of the Communist Party. But perhaps the political upside there, if you will, is that she also manages to essentially remove a lot of other elite leaders who perhaps wouldn't have been fully behind him and put in place a lot of his own supporters, which in the long run, you can definitely see the political calculations there. So how much has what's happened as part of the anti-corruption campaign had a big impact on his longevity and potential longevity as a political leader, enabling him to do some of the things that we've seen more recently and maybe staying in power longer than perhaps originally anticipated? This is an excellent question, actually. When you look at the anti-corruption, certainly this is the largest one in the Communist Party's history. Actually, in two years, the party will celebrate the 100th anniversary, just like in next few days, the country will celebrate the 70th anniversary of the founding of the PRC. So the campaign against corruption under Xi Jinping's watch certainly the largest one in the couple of years that he purged 440 senior leaders, which means that the vice minister and vice governor rank all above, and also including 78 military generals, major generals, lieutenant general, and four-star generals. It's never happened before in the PRC history. Now, of course, this anti-corruption is selective. It's not just purely based on legal procedure. But on the other hand, it's also in a way to save the Chinese Communist Party. Now, we maybe put too much emphasis on his consolidation power, which is certainly is the case, but also in a way that saved the Chinese Communist Party. This probably also shared by some other leaders. This kind of rampancy of the Communist Party corruption continue, the party will be gone. So in that regard, he got tremendous support 
from the political establishment with certain kind of reservation as well. So it's a very delicate balance. Now, certainly, you are absolutely right that he put a lot of his proteges into power. Now, let me also mention the bad ones. Very, very interesting. When he came to power in his first term, princelings actually dominated China's leadership. Xi Jinping was one of them because he needed princeling support to deal with his political opposition the rivalry by the Hu Jintao usually come from the humble background from Chinese Communist Youth League. So he used princelings to fight against the so-called Youth League factions. But when Youth League factions diminish, he actually now starts to remove some of the princelings out of power, particularly in the military. Now he just wants to promote his own protégés. Most of them are not necessarily princeling and in an important position, particularly his uh, associates in Fujian, Zhejiang, and Shanghai, and also his schoolmates at the Tsinghua University, and etc. So these people are well positioned, especially in the most important cities. Three or four years ago, none of Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, or Guangdong, or, or Shenzhen, and Guangzhou were led by his protégés, but now almost all, or at least 95%, led by his protégé. This is the way he consolidated power. You can see his adaptability. You can see his manipulation of the political system. So in his advantage, and to a certain extent, he certainly consolidated his power, but also from the Chinese Communist Party's perspective, saved the party. So what we might have understood in the past is sort of these traditional competing factions of the CCP yes. between the Youth League and the Princelings. You're essentially saying, that's done. It's Xi Jinping's CCP now. Is that fair? I probably would not go that far. Certainly, the previous relatively balanced faction, which I used to call one party, two factions, now not in the case because Xi Jinping dominated power. But at the same time, the competing factions still have some seats in important positions. Look at the Premier Li Keqiang, look at the youngest Vice Premier Hu Chunhua, look at Wang Yang, he is currently ranked number four. These are all from the Chinese Communist Youth League. So their representation significantly reduced. They no longer can balance Xi Jinping's power, but they are still there. I think that Xi Jinping now become majority in the power bureau, overwhelming majority. But at the same time, I think he could not complete the dominant leadership. So to a certain extent, he needs to be a little bit cautious to still let some of the other leaders from different backgrounds to be presented. Although there's no question that he is the boss and no one at the moment will challenge him. But on the other hand, you cannot completely eliminate factions. This is always will be with any political system. But at the moment, it's not balanced like what happened post the Deng era, especially in Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao era, usually they share a seats. But now Xi Jinping certainly have upper hand, especially in the power bureau. His proteges occupied almost 80%. So one thing that you saw in the press here in the United States, especially over the summer, was a lot of speculation that there's unhappiness in Zhang Nanhai right now <laughs> and that perhaps she has overstepped and that some of the other political elites are frustrated with how U.S.-China relations have taken this downward spiral and that he's under pressure because people are unhappy with the harder line that he's taken. What's your take? Is that fair assessment? No. How do you read the tea leaves? I think there's a genuine concern reservation about the abolishment of term limits. 
because you leave the political succession, which is very, very important, and which actually more or less institutionalized uh, under Deng Xiaoping. Now it becomes out of the window. So there's some concern within the political establishment. So it's fair to say that concern is or was widely shared. But probably the rumor talk about the letters or joint pressure may be a little bit exaggerated or overstated or etc. But I think that the top leadership will give Xi Jinping the benefit to gradually deal with some new challenges and eventually institute some of the institutional mechanism. But uh, the one thing certainly helped him is that the way that the U.S. can consider China as a rivalry or someone even say the enemy, the trade war and the decoupling and the, all these can treat China as enemy and the issues that the Chinese talk about the Xinjiang and the Hong Kong, Taiwan, etc. Now play around the Xi Jinping's favor to make him look like the leader to represent China's interest to be tough the foreign pressure. So that played around. So previously, probably there would be more cynicism from countries in middle class and about Xi Jinping, the way he governs, and etc. But now nationalism certainly prevails. So that's Xi Jinping certainly take advantage of that development. So he recently, he gave an important speech at the Central Party School just two weeks ago, uh, used the term doujen, which could translate either competition or struggle or fighting fighting against the United States, 56 times used in the speech. Let's tell you that uh, some of the policy shift. But uh, just uh, also two years ago, he said also publicly that there's one thousand reasons that the United States China should be partners, should be friends. So you can see his uh, policy adaptation, which is also quite remarkable. But uh, my point is, this is a leader, on the one hand, it's quite rigid, but at the same time, it's also quite flexible. It depends on what the issue areas. So by and large, he's a pragmatist and not like someone said, he's a completely rigid leader. So that's one background. Secondly, he actually not purely just based on his claim to consult his power. He worked along with the system. For example, the poverty elimination is in line with the party's agenda. So it's carried out more forcefully. So it's on behalf of the country's need or the party's need. So that also, we should not miss that kind of argument or Chinese perception. So you talk about this, the much more frequent use of the term competition, which is certainly being used much more frequently here in the United States as well. Yes. And you mentioned at the beginning China as a revisionist power, as a status quo power. I think if you talked to many American analysts right now, they would say, no, this debate is settled. China is absolutely a revisionist power. We can look at Chinese speeches. You can see it. They're clearly dissatisfied with the status quo. Hence, that's why we have to have this strategic competition lens for the U.S.-China relationship. Tell me where you see still a contradiction between China exhibiting status quo tendencies and revisionist tendencies. And do you think that this turn towards much more competition in Xi's rhetoric suggests that Chinese leadership at least intends to just much more openly embrace the concept of strategic competition going forward. This raises the question whether all these Xi Jinping's what perceive as aggressive acts are predetermined 
or to a certain extent, he reacts to ever-changing international environment. Right. So my answer is, it's probably it's more reactive rather than active. You can see that, uh, as you just mentioned, that his use of competition or fighting to a certain extent react to what we talk about in this country and talk about new areas to deal with China. Certainly, we use more often on competition rather than cooperation. Someone even said that we should not uh, talk about cooperation. We should not talk about the term engagement. So the overall message in the United States is disengagement or decoupling. So under that condition, quite naturally, that Xi Jinping may use some different language, which is departure with what he said early on. There's one thousand reasons that U.S.-China should take a work together. So my view is that he needs to react to the international environment for his advantage. Of course, that he now oversees the country. It's under historical re-rise, and the China becomes second largest economy. And of course, it comes with the China's ambition to be a major leader in world affairs. But whether this is complete departure from China's previous leaders now, of course, if Deng Xiaoping still alive, whether he will also pursue the One Belt One Road initiative or not, this is also debatable because now China increasingly depend on foreign market, foreign resources, and also China becomes so rich they also need to invest overseas. So that's the question: whether One Belt One Road is completely Xi Jinping's initiative or it's a natural growth with China's development. So in that regard. Whether it's individual behavior or a country's behavior. Now, of course, the international community should have every reason to be suspicious. But at the same time, we probably should not overstate the case or should misunderstand. But I think the bottom line is we do need to understand he got some tremendous support from the public, to a certain extent, from the also party establishment. But at the same time, the country. Is also increasing pluralistic intellectual criticism is also on the rise about the personality cut, cultural averaging style, media censorship. These are all true, but at the same time, the intellectuals also concern about the foreign pressure. Nationalism is also on the rise. At the end of the day, if China engage with the conflict with the United States, we can ask whether the whole country, the Chinese people, will support Xi Jinping. Will challenge him. Now, this is a very important phenomenon. My view is the national at the time of nationalism on the rise, Xi Jinping may feel may in reality also backed by the Chinese public, even including some of the intellectuals. Chang, thanks so much for taking the time to discuss your paper with us and sit down with me today. I hope people will go read your paper and all of the really interesting papers that scholars have produced for this project that are up on the Brookings website. With that, this has been another episode of the Brookings Cafeteria. I hope everyone will join me tomorrow for day four of our special Global China series. We will be talking with Caitlin Talmadge, Michael Hanlon about deterrence. So join me then. The Brookings Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reberedo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Feynman, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Lizette Baylor and Eric Abalahin provide design and web support. Our intern this fall is Eowyn Fain. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. 
The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.